Welcome to Grok Science. My name is Danny, and today I'm being joined by David Toomey, a professor of English at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And he wrote a book in 2014 called uh, Weird Life, The Search for Life That Is Very, Very Different From Our Own. It's a really interesting book. It sort of goes from explaining some of the uh, strange life that exists on Earth all the way to uh, strange life in science fiction. So uh, we're happy to have you, David. Thanks for having me. And uh, I guess the first question I'd like to ask you is, uh, what is weird life? Weird life is life that's radically and fundamentally different from life we know, um, which takes a bit of explaining. All life we know, and I really mean all life, you and me, an oak tree, a giant squid, a bacterium, share a great many common features. All life has the same lipids and its cell walls and same amino acids and proteins initiating and accelerating chemical reactions, the same chemical reactions. Uh, it, it's all these features that have led biologists to believe that all life we know is descended from a single common ancestor. This would be a microbe that lived some 3.5 billion to 3.8 billion years ago and reproduced. But weird life is a catch-all term for life that is not descended from that ancestor and does not share some of the features of life we know. Um, some uh, biologists and other sorts of scientists have hypothesized many sorts of weird life. Some say some slightly weird using amino acids, certain amino acids that familiar life doesn't use, some moderately weird, some very, very weird. Uh, and, but that's what weird life is. Uh, there are other terms for it. That's the uh, most interesting and provocative term among the choices I had, so I thought it would be the one to uh, to use in the title of the book. I see. So what catalyzed your interest in investigating weird life? I've always been interested in uh, science on the fringe, and uh, this is very much science on the fringe. It's uh, One might call it theoretical biology. Um, it should be said, if I didn't a minute ago, that all weird life is theoretical. No one has found any as yet. Got it. Yeah. In the book, uh, you sort of go through, you start off with some examples of extremophiles. So those aren't weird life. No, those those aren't weird life. They, they, are, they are extreme. Uh, they live uh, under very extreme conditions of uh, temperature and pressure. Uh, Etc. And uh, uh, scientists were uh, surprised uh, to find them when, uh, and to find so many of them uh, in so many different environments. Um, but uh, extreme as they are, they do share that common ancestor that we share. I want to sort of go into some examples in the book and just uh, hear your thoughts on them a little bit. You talk about this scientist, uh, Wolf Simon, and I think she had reported to find arsenic as a medium of growth or a nutrient required for growth in some bacteria. I'm curious, uh, what, what's your interpretation of those events? Uh, I, I, I don't want to presume to, uh, uh, to foist my interpretation, but I, but I can say, I think safely, that uh, uh, Wolf Simon's results were at best inconclusive, and they did not pass peer review. Uh, most 
knowledgeable biologists uh, reviewing those results decided uh, there were errors made in those experiments, and uh, and weird life uh, was not discovered. So the the hope for weird life, but it wasn't exactly uh, parsed out by the data. <laughs> um. So I mean, I just in general, like, how, how exactly did you find out about like that particular story in science? Because it's not. I don't think it's very highly publicized. Oh, in fact, uh, uh, the Wolf Simon um, story was highly publicized. Uh, it it was, uh, yeah. Um, in fact, uh, it was on television news, um, but it was only for about a week, uh, <laughs> um, and that's that's the reason you may you may have missed it. I mean, many people did miss it, but friends of mine knew I was working on this book, and I got a lot of emails that day. Um, people saying pay attention to this and i was uh i was a, a little bit suspicious about it even then it seemed a little uh seemed a little too fast um and uh no one seemed to be waiting for confirmation and, and the confirmation never came absolutely yeah actually it's, it's funny you say that because that that is my experience as well i was like uh I think I was an undergraduate researching at the time, and I just remember so many people talking about it, and it was, like, very sudden. Uh, so did you do a lot of interviews? Did you end up doing interviews with scientists in the course of constructing this book? Yeah, sure. Um, I interviewed a, I interviewed a, a scientist uh, at NASA Ames. Uh, I interviewed a scientist at uh, Woods Hole in Massachusetts. A few others here and there, yes. Yeah, actually, Ames is one of the. I this is something I learned through uh, reading the book. Is that like they really are the seems like the center for if there were to be something weird life looking for it, like that's the place to go. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, the uh, uh, they work. Many people there work in astrobiology. Uh, yeah, you, you mentioned that uh, people who have been to JPL, people like Lynn Margulis or Carl Sagan and James Lovelock. How much did you? Re how much have you read into their lives? And like, how do you see them as historical figures in science? Well, uh, Lovelock and Margulis, of course, are I suppose co-founders of uh, the Gaia hypothesis. Um, which, which is the Gaia hypothesis? The Gaia, Gaia hypothesis, roughly speaking, as the uh, the biosphere of Earth regulates itself. Um, uh, it uh, regulates itself in order to, to uh, uh, sustain its existence. Um, and it does this in, in subtle and unexpected ways. Uh, and much of it is done through microorganisms. Um, I should say that it, it is still a hypothesis and um, is, um, um, it still comes with its controversies. Um, uh, do you actually have any thoughts on the Gaia hypothesis? How do you feel about it as a, like, regardless of the data that supports it? Um, it well, how do I feel about the Gaia hypothesis? It's, it's a beautiful idea it, it, um, for what that's worth. And one, one wishes that um, a, a, any theory should have elegance, but uh, beauty and elegance... Um, should not be the determining factor in proving it.
Sagan, of course, uh, probably more known as a as a popularizer of science than um, than than a scientist, strictly speaking. Um, and uh, his uh, in um, the seventies and eighties, uh, particularly, um, made possibilities of discoveries of extraterrestrial life and extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, uh, very much, uh, brought them very much into the forefront of the popular imagination. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, did you did you read a lot of their work in preparation for writing Weird Life? Uh, I had probably grown up reading Carl Sagan. I stuff, uh, so that wasn't uh, terribly difficult. He he um, uh, and. Um, uh, a physicist had co-authored a piece, I think it was in the 1970s, um, very interesting, Weird Life uh, in the Atmosphere of the Planet Jupiter. <laughs> uh, and uh, they're uh, dirigible-like beings the size of cities um, that uh, that uh, just floated in Jupiter's atmosphere. Uh, Sagan was very interested in, in that sort of thing, but that's one of the mm. first if not the first uh, scientific papers that hypothesized a, a very specific sort of weird life. Um, and I, I I don't remember if I'd ever read that when I was reading Sagan uh, in high school, mm-hmm. but uh, but I did, I did take a look at it um, again as I was researching the book. Yeah, I, I hadn't actually heard of that at all. And when I read it, I was like, oh, wow, he really... He really stretches imagination to try to create, I guess, like a... Because it's very imagery-based, you know, it, having giant gas-filled balloons, basically, in the in the atmosphere of Jupiter. Yeah, yeah, very imagery-based. Yes, Sagan was very uh, interested in what things might look like. In fact, I think I say this in the book, that uh, he, uh, he realized that if there were beings that size, they would be the... Uh, the the imaging mechanisms, the cameras, as it were, on I think it would have been the Voyager spacecraft, uh, would have would have been able to detect them, and uh, he lobbied to have he lobbied to have uh, NASA aim the cameras to look for them. They didn't do it, hmm. so we don't know. <laughs> Uh, I was surprised that uh, sort of this astrobiology department at Ames, they were sort of working on uh, weird life or extraterrestrial life, rather, as early as the Viking, uh, the Viking probe to, to Mars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even earlier than that, I was surprised to find that, too. I mean, NASA's first interest in an extraterrestrial life um, really wasn't so much to find it, um, Strange to say, as it was to prevent our contaminating that environment and somehow inadvertently destroying that life. Um, the the term is called forward contamination. So, what do you think about what do you think? Uh, did you in in your reading about pe- people and just bringing all these different sources of information together? Uh, like, what do you think? interest people about weird life like why do people choose to study it or right why is there why are there studies and books about it 
Uh, well, I, well, I think it's uh, really the answer is no different than why there are studies or books about any uh, any natural phenomenon that we don't understand. Um, mm. It's strange. Um, it's it's different. In a word, not to be too cute here, but it's just weird. We are some of us anyway interested in interested in in what is weird, what is not like us, and yet might be out there somewhere. I like to talk about another one of the projects, the the SETI project. Uh, I think that's Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about SETI? Uh, yeah, well, SETI is a catch-all term. Um, as you said, yes, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and uh, there have been uh, numerous projects uh, undertaking that search since, I suppose, 1959. Um, and I don't know how many there are altogether. The count is uh, the count is quite high. It's dozens, at least, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, and some of them are very, very large. The SETI Institute, uh, managed, I think it's still managed by Seth Shostak, um, is probably one of the larger uh, at the moment. Although I read last week that the Chinese are... Um, are building uh, a very large radio telescope specifically uh, for SETI. Hmm. Um, uh, so, what are the, how does a radio telescope work uh, for searching for extraterrestrial life exactly? Uh, well, it simply listens for radio signals. Um, this is one of the old ideas, um, the, the, the tried and true techniques for attempting to discover. Um, extraterrestrial civilizations. The presupposition is <clears throat> that um, uh, extraterrestrial civilizations, uh, uh, or at least some of them, would be using radio signals to communicate radio signals because uh, they are cheap, uh, they travel at the speed of light, which is as fast as anything can travel, and transmitters and receivers are uh, easy to build, and all uh, all civilizations, all technologies with a basic knowledge of physics would be able to do it. So it would be um, the obvious thing to do. Thus, uh, the, uh, most SETI projects, I think the great majority of them have been listening for radio signals. I see, yeah, but so, someone else out there is just as curious about finding uh, other forms of intelligence as we are of finding uh, other forms of intelligence. So I think uh, there's, a, there's this uh, famous paradox that was uh, uh, posited by Enrico Fermi, right, that if the space is as large as we think it is, Right? Uh, why haven't we found <laughs> uh, forms of weird life yet? Uh, I'm afraid I have to be agnostic on the whole thing. I I don't know. Um, I I have I'm afraid I have very little original to offer on the Fermi paradox. It is a paradox, um, and it is difficult to explain. Um, it becomes more difficult to explain uh, because um, um, a couple of um, uh, scientists have taken it a bit further. Well, one answer 
let me back up. One answer um, to the Fermi paradox, why, why haven't we seen any, is simply because the distances between the stars and solar systems and putative civilizations living on planets in the solar systems, the distances are just too great. Um, you and um, uh, we, uh, no one, no one could, uh, uh, no one, no one could um, uh, build that many spaceships or spacecraft to move that quickly. Uh, but um, uh, some recent thinking has been: you don't even have to move very quickly. The um, the the galaxy is so old that. Um, even rather slow-moving spacecraft and slow colonizers would have uh, colonized it several times over by now and left out it. Um, which uh, doesn't answer the paradox. It, uh, it, in a way, it compounds the problem. Uh, another section of your book is about uh, science fiction. I guess I'm curious, and looking at all those different types of science fiction weird life, do, do you have any favorites? <laughs> Do I have favorites? <laughs> um, I'm I'm not sure how I would go about picking favorites. Um, favorites in that um, they tickle my imagination, I suppose. Um, Absolutely. Well, Fred Hoyle's Black Cloud. Uh, Fred Hoyle, um, uh, one of many scientists who wrote science fiction on the side. Um, mm-hmm. His, his book, The Black Cloud, is about an intelligent um, um, interstellar nebula. Oh. Uh, and it, um, it, um, it works in a way uh, analogous to the way the human brain works, um, electrical signals among its, among its parts. Um, it's very much a character in the novel. And... Uh, and, uh, and of course, a very, very strange character. In your sort of reading of this, do you, do you see that a lot of the weird life that's posited in science fiction has roots within things that are thought about within, like, the fringes of science itself? Yes, yes. Um, the, uh, the, my chapter, in the, the chapter in the book on science fiction uh, tries to parse the science fiction that is that is rooted in science from the rest of it and i i focus on the former and most of those scientists i mean most of those authors like fred hoyle um either were practicing scientists who were doing a little fiction on the side or had studied science so do you do you currently read a lot of science fiction i read a lot of science fiction in junior high school and high school and I I don't read a lot of it now. I, I do dip into it every now and then. My students will bring books to me and uh and can ask me what I thought of them or or tell me I should read them. And I do sometimes but I um I um in in, in a way I I I don't, I don't know that much about current science fiction writing. Um, sometimes you get your fill of a genre, and I almost feel that I got my fill of it in junior high and high school. I'm, I'm become more interested in in the real science after a while, and and in fact, honestly, the science itself 
um, can satisfy those cravings for uh, for for what's weird, sure, uh, what's strange, um, and in a way, um, it's it's more it's it's more fulfilling because you know it's 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 real it's real science anyway. Right. How do you think uh, after writing this book, Weird Life? How do you think the information that you gather has changed the way you thought about the way the planet works or the search for extraterrestrial life? Um, well, I, I, I did not realize uh, that there was. I think I did not realize that there was a universal common ancestor that mm. we all shared. And I, you hear people say, and you you read a lot about how um, uh, we share the earth with other creatures, um, and I, and that's that's all quite true. I think what's as true, and in a way, um, a more profound and prevailing insight is that is that we share an ancestor with all other creatures. Yeah, so why did you why did you write Weird Life? What, what do you hope that people gain from reading it? Well, I I wrote it uh my well, my original impulse to writing it was I thought it was a very interesting subject and it simply hadn't been much written about it. I really didn't see um, um a, a book on weird life um since uh Peter Ward's book Life as We Do Not Know It. Um but and that was that was written um um well there there've been a number of uh uh, shall we say, advances, if not outright discoveries, since Ward wrote that book, so it seemed time. Um, I think what I hope people gain from it, among other things, is a, a better appreciation for life as we do know it. Hmm. Do you, like, how do you see your role, I guess, as as a, do you, do you classify yourself as a science writer? Um, I I don't think about it much. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't think about my role that much. I I just uh, um I uh I, but I but I suppose I am. Yeah, I suppose uh, uh, th this book is uh classified as science writing and uh it is uh if I have a role here in this book, I, I suppose it's a mediator between uh the scientists and uh the lay public. Mm, mm. Mm -hmm. um, so are you writing anything now that, that has to do with science? Uh, I'm kicking around a few ideas. Um, one, uh, one idea uh, is, is for a work that talks about um, imagining what it's like to be an animal. There was a, there's an old there's a paper in philosophy called uh, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? Uh, rather famous in philosophical circles by uh, philosopher Robert Nagel. And uh, Nagel's conclusion is uh, because the experience of a bat is so fundamental, fundamentally different than ours, we can't know. We can never know what it is like to be a bat. Um, and um, my, um, I, I, I think that's a very, very provocative idea 
and thought experiments. And I think a lot of people think about or have thought about what it's like to be a given animal. For sure. Is that sort of related to the question of consciousness? It, it is. Mm. It most definitely is. And uh, animal cognition and animal consciousness right now is, uh, um, is, uh, is, is a burgeoning field. Well, thanks for joining us <laughs> on Grok Science. And thanks for having me, Danny. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs>